Hello everyone and welcome to Luke Law. Quick deep dive into a folklore topic where I share some of the stories from around the world that have piqued my interest. Well, this episode is something a little different. I'm still not 100% as of yet. I was incredibly ill with shingles for a fur whack of weeks and I'm still on the painful road to full recovery. I missed a month of work and it's still going after being back for two weeks. That I'm so exhausted is pretty stressful for me. I'm smashing it back at my day job in ways that I can't explain due to NDAs, so I've gotten my mojo back, but I'm too tired to do much more than that. I've even had to take occasional days off to rest because it can still be that rough on a bad day. Long story short, try not to get shingles, it's horrible. This, however, isn't supposed to be a pity party, more a celebration. I have a lot of awesome things coming down the pipeline this year, and some fun plans for Luke Law specifically. I just need a little longer yet to rest up. So we're bringing together some of my favourite stories I've done in the early days of Luke Law with a little extra commentary. Some stories I have, some tidbits of lore to add, others I just love so, so much I want to boost their signal. It's 50-50 really. Two I have some information to add, and two that mean something to my journey as a folklorist. So let us dive down into a Luke Law retrospective. A clip show redux I don't intend to make use of unless something significant enough to drag me away has struck me for good or for ill. In this case, very ill. The Beast of Gévaudan. This one goes way back. It was, in fact, a single topic show. Only my second show, a much shorter format that didn't last any time at all. My first few original episodes are in fact about as long as a single section of my more modern shows, which is something about to see via incorporation here. This has turned into an opportunity for me. There is a significant note I've been itching to add to the story in some way. The Beast of Gévaudan is, as far as I've been able to tell, the origin of silver being a weakness for werewolves. There are plenty of older ones, such as Mistletoe and the more on-the-nose named Wolfsbane, plus many a story where the werewolf is not supernaturally immune to damage. Not that this is much of an advantage when a giant wolf with human intelligence has come to sneak into your house with murderous hunger on its mind. But then we come to Silver, something that actually used to be more directly linked to vampire tales. What in fact came of the original Beast Tale was that church-blessed medals and or icons were supposedly melted down to make the killing bullets. It was intended to be warrior Jesus propaganda, but instead all people took from the tale was the silver, not the blessings. It's a small ad, but I found it interesting. 18th century France, the Gévaudan province in the south. The first reported attack was in 1764 as a young woman tending cattle was attacked by something she described as a large, wolf-like creature with reddish fur, small ears, a dog-like head, and a long tail. Luckily for her, the cattle she was looking after managed to drive it away. So, cows won, werewolves nil. A few days later, not far from the first reported attack site, a 14-year-old girl called uh, Yane Bollet goes missing. There is no sign of a body, just her bonnet and clogs were found. Across the summer of 1764, more and more reports of attacks came in, most often against people working alone in the fields. Hysteria begins to take hold. The people of Gévaudan province began to arm themselves and attack the local wolves in an attempt to put an end to the beast. Reported injuries showed that the victims were targeted around the neck and head. Talk began that the beast was attacking not for food, but just for fun. As winter hit, the frequency of attacks increased. By this point, reports were split. The more supernaturally inclined, and bear in mind that this was the 1700s, were convinced this was the work of a werewolf, a half-man, half-beast, slaughtering the innocent workers. 
The beast only got bolder, eventually attacking a band of armed men, including a young man called Yax Portfei. News of this attack got back to the king Louis XV. The king compensated the attack men, including paying for the education of Yax Portfei, and declared that the government would see to the hunting down and slaying of the Beast of Jevodan. The hunt for the beast then becomes a comedy of errors, which gets less funny when you realise how many innocent wolves were killed as a part of the panic. A pair of professional hunters go first in early months of 1765, on the assumption they were dealing with a Eurasian grey wolf. Tweedledum and Tweedledummer here proceed to kill hundreds of grey wolves, and don't appear to have even accidentally disrupted the attacks, which continued without pause. As the victim count rose going into the summer of that year, the king replaced the dumbasses with his own personal lieutenant of the hunt, Francois Antoine. Francois took the novel approach of actually looking for big wolves instead of just going on a puppy murder rampage. As the hunt went on to autumn, he managed to kill the three biggest wolves yet. Of those three, the biggest was over five and a half feet long, coming in at 31 inches tall and weighing 130 pounds. The king decreed this to be the beast, stuffed it for the royal palace uh, so that everyone could see it, and showered Francois in rewards. Horror movie fans know what's coming next. It's basically Jaws, only somehow this is a historic event with a bloody werewolf. The attacks continued after a brief break of about three months. Attacks continued into 1761. At that point, locals go nuclear. A local innkeeper called Jean Chastel put together a group of hunters reported to have been 300 strong and goes on the warpath. They supposedly get the beast, and the attacks do seem to stop after this was reported. But there's one last twist. A detail added to the story that was an unusual rumour anyone in a modern audience would immediately understand the significance of. People had claimed that the hide of the beast turned aside bullets. Only rumour was, Chastel used a silver bullet to put the beast down. This actual reported beast, its victims, and its escalating hunt may well be where the myth about silver bullets killing werewolves comes from. True, the stature of the beast likely grew in the retelling, and its eventual defeat almost certainly became a more epic battle than what happened in reality, but this is a brilliant foundation for what's now popular folklore. Speaking of popular folklore, the beast itself is pretty well known in pop culture, and is a pretty famous werewolf for the retellings. A quick search turns up mentions in the recent Teen Wolf TV series, and the film Brotherhood of the Wolf, as well as more classic literary takes such as Le Bête de Givardin. Not to be a spoil sport, but I did come across a theory which may explain the beast without any supernatural elements. Let's talk a little about exotic pets. The rich and easily bored have something of a storied history of picking up exotic pets, with a fun karmic subset of stories about said exotic pets then eating them. Even this year, a giant cat has been photographed in Britain, most likely an escapee from a posh mansion where someone with more money than sense picked up a wild animal as a status symbol. Britain especially has something of a history of big cats spotted in the wild, the lead theory being that they self-liberate from posh confines. It could well be that Jevodan had an extra angry example of this. But then we have reports of a giant, monstrous wolf, right? Most eyewitness reports said it looked like a tall wolf, with some saying it stood as large as a small horse. One quick question, how the heck would an 18th century French peasant know what a lion looks like? Zoos were private collections, often of the aforementioned rich idiots. Heraldic designs only showed you badly drawn lions with manes. No education, no books. They know what a hungry wolf was to stay away from it though. 
That could well be the only context they had for a man-eating quadruped, although still a little odd that they didn't think giant cat was a possibility. The theory I came across reckoned immature lion without a mane, without the only real frame of reference they have for lion, and it damn well wouldn't be meowing to give away its feline heritage, this theory starts to seem possible. Don't forget that the first known report specified reddish colouring, and every hunt seemed to spiral into exercising grey wolf killing futility. Add panic to the mix, and the body of the true beast never being recovered for public display back in more civilised Paris, it's a pretty compelling take on the beast of Gévaudan. Not as much fun, but I doubt fun was how the terrified peasants took the attacks. Quibbling over what particular murder beast could descend upon them at any moment likely wasn't high on the list of priorities. That was the story of the Beast of Gévaudan, a real scourge upon France which appears to be where the idea of silver bullets to kill a werewolf came from. This is only an overview of the story for the most part, although I hope I found some interesting things to share. There's actually the Museum of the Beast of Gévaudan in Sargs Arvain. If I ever manage to make my way over there I may do a follow-up episode, possibly even a video tour of the museum to share, depending on how angry that I'll make the curators. The Spectral Cat of Leyland. No new notes to add to this one, this is simply one of the stories that fill me with the light and it's been playing on my mind recently. It's an older tale from what falls in Season 2 of Luke Law. The episode Lancashire is Haunted and Now So Are You. It actually marks one of the turning points in my research career, something that happened gradually to me but I was proud of looking back upon. Originally a lot of my material followed a simple process. I recall something I already learned at some point, I refreshed my memory of work with a read-up, I passed the tale on. With this story, from the county I grew up in, begins a much more important evolution of my work. It was a story I had never heard anything about before, but I tracked down for my brief, and I loved it. It's an otherworldly cat that chose to mess with a church being built. Then a group of drunks tried to attack it with disastrous results. Way back in the 12th century, the Church of Leyland was set to be built in earnest. A church of some form had been present before this, but this was the laying of the foundations of what went on to become the church Leyland has today. Or, at least, the attempted laying of the foundations. They kept being moved in the night. Workmen would set up one day to begin work the next, and come back in the morning to an irate farmer who's had stones dumped on their land. So the priest enlists some local men to watch for the culprit. Local men who promptly get drunk and fall asleep. When the priest comes to check up on them, and rouses them from a drunken slumber, after a little arguing, they realise something strange is happening. A great black cat with unearthly eyes and a barb on the end of its tail was picking up a stone like it was nothing and taking it to the field just over the way to spit it out. They all watched this strange spectacle for a while in shock. This giant, clearly overworldly kitty moving the stones the masons need for whatever bizarre cat logic reason. Now, one of the priest's companions decides to leap into action here. They muster their bravery, raise their club, and charge in to beat this ethereal cat into submission, to smite the feline spectre with righteous fury. Okay, anyone who knows regular cats want to place the bets on how well this goes for him? The cat proved to be two things. Immune to physical damage, and an angry giant cat. It leapt onto its attacker, ripped his throat out with its teeth, and ran off in a huff not to return. So, yay church foundation stopped being moved? Leyland Church as it is now known today first got built. But, Spectral Cat 1, slightly drunk guys with club zero. 
probably could have done with a church grim to chase this kitty away. Certainly shouldn't have run over and tried to hit it. A regular cat would come up fighting, let alone a giant demonic spectral one. The Knuckle This is from, what if I remember right, is my third show? The first to have multiple topics, so an early important step forwards for me. We cover one of my all-time favourite creatures of folklore here, in the Knuckle of E. There's not much extra to say beyond stick around, this one's a doozy, but later work and deeper dives into Celtic folklore may have some extra context for the creature. The Knuckle of E is truly monstrous, and while maybe some form of furry creature, it isn't especially jewel of nature, it's just a murder machine. To be fair, people could be somewhat of a problem, and a natural system in place to clear us up if we're wandering around messing up nature could be more neutral than malevolent, only evil from our perspective of being knocked off the top killer spot. What sticks more with me is that this is more Gallic, so Scottish, story that also appears to have migrated over to the Norse, and I truly do believe it's a culturally migrating myth. Where I wonder it may have come from now is if the Knuckle of E may be a Fomorian in the Celtic tradition. The Fomori are the original monstrous tribe that was found in Ireland before the Tawatha de Danann, or children of the goddess Danann. Or even more simply put, and that's such not really right at all but an instructive lie, elves. They moved into Ireland before humans eventually settled there, so it goes the Fomori, the elves, the humans as major tribes and transitions across the history of Ireland. They are commonly associated with the depths of the sea and dangerous rivers, from which they came, and where they returned to when their time was over. These deep places they may come forth from once more, should humans stray where they should not, and an angry original owner of the world rises to lash out in a primal rage. Give this story a listen and see how well that idea fits here. The Knuckle of E is that rare furry being which is lacking in duality, although it most definitely is held to be a fake creature. Best known across the coast of Scotland and in Nordic tales than in the Celtic traditions, the Knuckle of E hates all humans and kills them indiscriminately. You would know it if you saw it, or at least know to run away from it, as it looks like some kind of messed up centaur. The entirety of a horse, with the upper torso of a man fused seamlessly where a rider would normally sit, but not entirely like a man, as its long grasping arms trail so long that they can reach the floor. Beyond the odd proportions, the knuckle of E is clearly not some strange mirage of a ridden horse for one other obvious feature. It has no skin. Red raw sinew and veins are exposed on the knuckle of E. Feel free to google this guy, they have a great image gallery online as morbidly fascinated artists take on the tale. The knuckle of E will stalk out from the sea to kill any human it spots on the coast. While it probably has the typical fair weaknesses of disliking iron and not being a fan of Christianity, the go-to staples are probably just going to enrage it. So should a monster that would put most of the Silent Hill menagerie to shame come charging out to see at you to rip your head off, I recommend a knuckle of your specific weakness here. This furry murder beast cannot stand pure water. If you get to any of it, especially a flowing stream, you're fine. Although, don't mock it if you do get away. It may remember you if you do this, and being a faceless human that got away is one thing. Getting yourself on the shit list of a monster that scared marauding vikings is probably not a great life choice. The Yaramayahu. This is another story I have little to say except I love it and want to signal boost it. Another one of my original episodes, this one being from the Australia episode, Yowies and the Dreamtime Down Under. 
This one was something of a transitional story, similar to The Spectral Cat of Leyland, a first tentative step in the right direction as it wasn't a story I tracked down specifically, but wasn't something I already knew. I blundered into this piece of folklore while researching stories from Australia for the Ghost Story Guys podcast. This is the Aboriginal Australian Vampire, the outrageous Yaramayahu, and this isn't the first time I've retold this story. I enjoyed discovering it immensely and will very happily share it more given the chance. I've saved the great one for last, definitely a personal favourite. If anyone follows me around as I turn up on other podcasts, which is pretty real but can happen, on the Right Track podcast episode 4, Count Dragula, I shared the story of an Aboriginal Australian vampire called the Yaramayahu. This is from the forests of the Pacific coast and seems in line with cautionary folktales aimed at keeping children safe, but this is Australia. As such, the Australian vampire is somewhat different compared to the rest of the world. The Yaramayahu looks like a four foot tall frog covered in reddish brown hair, with a huge mouth that can unhinge its jaw like a snake. It drinks blood from suckers in its fingers and toes, so it'll drop on people from a tree and latch onto them, feeding off them until they faint. They're stronger than the strongest man, great climbers, and prefer feeding on children, but they can only waddle as they walk along the ground, a bit like a cockatoo. Once a victim passes out from blood loss, it'll then swallow them whole, going through a process of swallowing and spitting up the victim in between taking naps. The second time it spits a victim up, they get shorter and lose all their own body hair. The third time the victim gets even shorter and becomes covered in thick reddish brown hair. Eventually, the victim will become a new Yaramayahu. If you play dead when you're spat up though, the Yaramayahu has to follow a ritual it isn't allowed to cheat on or the spirits of the fig trees will punish them, turning the monster into tree mushrooms. First, it walks five paces away before returning to poke the victim's side with a stick. Then ten paces before tickling them with a stick. Then fifty yards, followed by more tickling. If the person stays playing dead up to that point, it then goes to have a nap, giving them a chance to run away as the monster is so slow on the ground. The Yaramayahu will call, Where have you gone, my victim, and try to chase, but they are easy to escape. A spiteful Yaramayahu may then drink up all the nearby water, so thirsty people have no choice but to cover for tree sap, but they can then try and get a new victim. Thank you for coming on this journey with me exploring my earlier work. I hope you enjoyed it, as I definitely did. There's so much more I could talk about, from black dogs to yokai to festive yule monsters, but I hope to be happily looking forward for the near future now. The next episode I have planned, but haven't had the bandwidth to put together just yet, it's one I'm looking forward to, while it is a little on the silly side for a theme. I'm well on my way to being fighting fit again, something I'm very happy to say. Still uncomfortable, but... Eh, I can deal with it. I'm through the worst of it and determined to move on no matter how much it wants to linger. Luke Law is a Ghost Story Guys production. If you do want to contact me, there's the show's dedicated email, lukelawgsg at gmail.com, and the general show email, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. Both myself and the main show are really easy to find on Facebook and Twitter if you want to make day-to-day contact, as well as a very active Instagram account a lot of the community gets involved with. If you do want to support the show directly, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. We do have Luke Law merchandise available at the Ghost Story Guys online store. Feel very free to show off any you get online. We have an ongoing push to promote Luke Law more, and the dedicated Facebook group for the show is now live if you want to come join us over there. As ever, though, the absolute best thing anyone can do to support the show is to give it a listen. Share this around if you think you may know someone who may be interested, leave a review if you get the chance to help signal boost me, 
And most of all, I simply hope you enjoy what I'm doing here. Goodbye for now.